Ladies and gentlemen, in the blue corner, standing at a sleek 5'11", 245 pounds, the tumultuous tempest of technique, Thomas Lilly. And in the red corner, at a curvaceous 5'11", 315 pounds, the jovial juggernaut of judgment, John Cheryl Sheridan. A meeting of the masters of mastication turn your attention as they delve deep into all things lifting and more. This is Peak Speak. And we're back with exciting news. Yes, we are now professional. We have a sponsor for the show, which is awesome for us, but even more awesome for you. Indeed, because who doesn't love a sweet, sweet online shopping discount code? And in this case, it's an online shopping discount code that gets you delicious coffee delivered to your doorstep. From our good friends, Prism Coffee, who are four Canberra lads who I've known for a while. Uh, who've all worked in and around the specialty coffee industry for some time now and now uh, out on their own they've got a roaster they're roasting beans uh, and just generally kicking ass with delicious coffee so john how do the people get this amazing <laughs> discount you speak of go to their website which is prismcoffee.com.au pick from the couple of different blends and some single origins that they've got you can get it ground you can get it in whole beans if you prefer to grind your own they've got all of the options uh, and then you use the code PEAKSPEAK in the discount bit of the shopping cart and uh, you'll get a sneaky 10% off and it'll rock up on your doorstep in some amount of time I don't remember exactly what it is but I think they express post everything so hopefully quickly perfect Amazing. And well, that's it. Without further ado, here's, here's the episode. Yeah. Enjoy. Presented by Thomas Lilly and John Sarah and Baby Cry in the Background, not included. Yeah, man, me neither. And I this time I got a pop-up that says this meeting's being recorded. Wow. That didn't happen last time. All I got was that weird robot voice. I don't understand how in 2021 we can't have a generic computer voice that sounds more like a person than whatever the fuck that is. Maybe that's the point, though. Maybe it's like to remind us that we are separated from the machines so we but don't get too we? comfortable. So we know So we know when AI is taking over, we're like, you're not a real person. Well, okay. but that's the thing, right? Maybe we don't know that, and that's the point. Maybe. <sighs> Time We're just going to go down a weirdly esoteric uh, wormhole again in this episode after talking about thoughts as viscous liquids last time. I think so. Yeah. And some AI conspiracy would be great right about now. Yeah. I don't know enough about AI to be into any AI conspiracy theories. Mm. Mm. Homo Deus. Have you read that? Yes. Oh, I've listened to it. Cause, yeah. Same. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I have. Interesting. That was good. I, I didn't enjoy it as much as uh, Sapiens. Yeah. Um, mostly, I think, because it's so much of it's just conjecture and, like, possibility as opposed to actual, like, a, a story about what has happened and can be proven. Um, yeah. Which is, I think, what I found so interesting about Sapiens. Yeah, I, I think one of the most interesting conversations that came out of it were, like, the implications of eternal life. The, the implications of immortality and what that actually looks like in terms of, you know, the economy, in terms of relationships, in terms of um, 
dealing with grief in terms of like so many things that came out of it i actually yeah, threw man. that i threw that question at sarah the other day and had this conversation with her around like have you ever thought about what it would look like if we could live for 300 years or indefinitely you know yeah the weird thing would be what you, what does your body do at that point because hmm. like if i could live to 150 but by 150 still function like uh you know relatively spry 75 year old great if i get to 150 and i look like a 150 year old then life's gonna be pretty shit and but at I, that point i think that's the point though like on on the implication that you keep your regular healthy young adult body you know yeah well and it, then that's a still a very odd concept to think about fuck yeah uh yeah i don't know that i want to do that mm. like don't get me wrong the concept of dying terrifies me <laughs> but also the concept of living for 300 years also terrifies me like fuck man i'm tired I'm like 32. <laughs> like, <laughs> lose, lose situation at this point. Imagine how fucking exhausted you'd be by that point. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How was your ride? Uh, yeah, long. So uh, for those of you that tuned in last week, I, uh, what's the word? Foreshadowed my first real endurance endeavor. Uh, I went for a bike ride. It was a very long bike ride uh, on Sunday. I had originally planned to do, it was going to be somewhere around 50 kilometers on a loop of the northern part of the Centenary Trail. The Centenary Trail is like a big dirt trail that runs the circumference of Canberra. So I was going to do like the northern loop basically from my house. Um, and I was not prepared for it. Uh, that I learned a few lessons on that front. Having never really done anything like that, uh, I thought I'd done some preparation. I had not done a sufficient amount. Um, finding out an hour into what I had budgeted. So I'd budgeted initially like five to six hours. Mm -hmm. uh, about 45 minutes to an hour in, I realized that my camelback was leaking quite severely yeah, um, because that. my uh, child had spent some time gnawing on the bite valve to the point where my left ass cheek was just really wet because that's sort of where the camelback sits on my hip pack. And... Um, so that was a, a frustrating problem to deal with, mostly just because I ran out of water at one point. Um, fortunately, I wasn't too far from civilization. Uh, so yeah, I like I was on the bike at six fifteen. Like, got up, ate breakfast, drank a coffee, got on the bike, uh, started riding. Uh, I thought I'd done a reasonable job of preparing, like by having enough food. Um, so I just had like bars and a couple of gel things. Basically, I didn't. Uh, I definitely underprepared on that front uh, and probably needed another couple of hundred grams of carbs to actually get me through it. Mm. Uh, it ended up taking me five and a half hours basically of moving time and I ended up doing, I think it was 66 and a bit kilometers. Uh, it was like six and a half hours in total because uh, I did some resting. It would probably surprise no one to know. Uh, and yeah, I had a really good time, man. It was hard in ways that i am not used to uh i think the last sort of hour hour and a half were hard because i just I, my brain was done by that point i'd i'd run out of food couldn't be bothered stopping to get something and uh yeah just like made a couple of bad turns because i didn't quite know where i was going and that compounded my frustrations with being tired and exhausted and that sort of thing but yeah it was it was a it was a cool experience i um have never done anything for that long at that level of output 
you know, I think for five and a half or six and a half hours, my average heart rate was like 140. Uh, so yeah, it was hard work. Uh, my girlfriend, when I got home was like, so are you going to do that again? As I stood there, like leaning to one side because my left QL had tightened up so much that I couldn't stand up straight. I was like, oh, are you going to do that again? I was like, oh, I'll probably do something longer. So at some point I'd like to do the whole centenary trail in a day. It's like 140 something kilometers. Um, but we'll see. <laughs> We'll, we'll see how that goes because it was really fucking hard, basically. Uh, and I paid mm. for it for a couple of days. Mostly, like, my back and shoulders were sore from being sort of hunched in that position for so long. My legs yeah. were fine. Um, I'm going to train this afternoon <laughs> at some point for the first time since then see how it feels. But, um, yeah, overall, it was a, a really interesting experience. That's and so the very cool. definition of, like, type two fun. Like, there yeah. were moments where it was blissful. Like, at a beautiful sunrise, riding down hills, like, just generally having a good time. And then there were other moments where it was really quite unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, overall, really cool experience. Yeah, nice. That's awesome. Do you feel accomplished? I don't know. Like, accomplished is a weird a weird description for that sort of emotion. Cause in those environments, I very rarely feel accomplished. I often just feel relieved because of the way my brain works. I start putting myself in a position where I commit to these ideas. And so the finishing isn't really a like, Oh yes, what an accomplishment. It's like, fuck, thank God that's over. <laughs> Cause I've just built it up in my head as this thing, like even hitting PBs on the platform, those sort of things. I often don't, like accomplished or satisfied is not the right description for how I feel. It is often yes. a case of like relieved because it worked and relieved because it, it happened the way I planned it to happen and those mm-hmm. sort of things. Yeah, it's um, it's weird. I don't know if I'm alone in that, but it's certainly something that I've noticed more and more as I get older. Like the, the more I go for these like limit performances in whatever I'm doing, it's a case of like, oh, thank God that's over as opposed to fuck yeah, I did that. Mm. I think there's because the, I mean I, I I can empathize with that completely. I think there's probably an underlying thing of like you know, um, it, it <laughs> like there'd almost be more satisfaction in failing in the sense that you know you've reached your limit. Yeah, and, you know, like yeah. there's, there's a line that you can then push further. Then it's kind of like fuck, thank God that's over. But there's still that question mark of like how far could I have gone? Yeah, yeah. Like I. Had I had more food, I reckon I could have kept going. Because I, other than just being incapable of standing up straight by the end of it, like I just, my like lower left lung just wouldn't inflate properly because my QL and everything was just fucking locked (laughs) up on that side. So that was really unpleasant. Um, But yeah, like I got home, ate some food. I think I cracked a beer, got in the shower and then fell asleep for like 45 minutes. (laughs) Like I I just needed food in me and then I needed to lie down. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but yeah, good times, good times. Sweet. What are we talking about today? Uh, well, because you're basically useless when it comes to uh, being a part of this podcast in any meaningful fashion, other than being the only one that gets tagged in most of the Instagram posts, uh, I've come up with the topic again. Um, this morning, I think it was. I would I've- say I'm useless in just basically everything. Well, you're the one that gets tagged in face in Instagram posts way more regularly than I do. It's for, the, uh, it's for the clout. It's for the share. Yeah, I know. It, it's one of the most frustrating parts of my entire existence. Because <laughs> um, as you can tell, I live a pretty easy life. Uh, 
I put a post up this morning on the Burley page uh, the because I'm as much of a fan of a clickbaity text tile as any person. I put up a text tile that said 3 by 10 at 50% does not equal technique work uh, and then expand went on to expand on that. Uh, basically just touching on the idea of like specificity of skill and its application to powerlifting and strength expression. Uh, and so that's what we're going to talk about. Yeah. So I, like I saw that come up and I thought, well, this is going to be a good topic to sort of just unpack and discuss a little bit further. Yeah. Cause I feel like it's something that's become one of these things that, uh, is, is part of the, the common lifters rhetoric. Um, that doesn't get questioned it's just something that you say because it sounds tidy a lot of people do it with particular exercises like this is helping my this it's like is it helping that thing or are you just saying that it's helping you think because everyone says it's helping that thing yeah, yeah and i feel exactly. like it's like i'm doing these for i'm doing these to improve technique i'm doing this percentage range this tempo this whatever to improve technique and it's like is is the notion of that percentage or of that tempo or of that exercise actually helping technique or are you just saying it because it allows you to justify doing that thing um yep. and so like for me it's not about being hypercritical of what people say it's it's about teaching you know the listener when you when you look at something or when you're saying something like really actually go to the length of asking yourself that question if so if you see someone saying i'm doing this for technique work the first question should be like how is this contributing to technique how are you going to take that percentage that rep range that tempo that exercise and tangibly make it apply into the technique of whatever movement you're trying to improve uh, because this idea of technique work like you said if we're trying to improve technique on something there there is this layer of specificity um, yes. and and that specificity does specificity does exist on a on a spectrum Mm -hmm. um so yeah i guess like that's what i wanted to start talking about is just going a little bit deeper down this rabbit hole and, and opening it up a little bit yeah and i think the same discussion come out uh you can come out from the other end of the spectrum where we've had discussions uh in the past about people coaches specifically spouting are like oh look how much better this person's technique is because we did exercise x y and z and then comparing a like a missed lift to a 90% lift or a, an 85% lift or, or something like that where, again, they're perhaps conflating the actual results there. Like, yeah, I would expect your technique at 85% to look better than it does at 102%. And so justifying your exercise selection and comparing those two and calling that correlation causation idea is is also a dangerous one because ultimately when it comes to the way your body organizes under load or under the stress of whatever the task is 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 going to be specific to that task so and we've all seen lifters and it's especially common in like really big strong people who maybe squat over 200 maybe over 300 and you watch them squat an empty bar and it looks like absolute dog shit and in most people, I like I want you to squat an empty bar when I first see you train just to get a feel for like how you move. How do you get under the bar? What's your process look like? Those sort of things. But I pretty much never say anything about any of that until we've actually got some weight on it. So I can see how you start to actually organize with weight on the bar. Mm -hmm. It's the same reason you can't coach someone's low bar powerlifting style squat technique based on a fucking goblet squat. Mm -hmm. Like it's a totally different task. You're 
your despite the pattern or the underlying movement pattern being basically the same the actual specific demands of the task are so far removed from those two distinctions because they're really at two ends of an an absolute spectrum right uh and so understanding that yeah you can get elements of the system as a whole in variations so like maybe you can emphasize a particular part of a squatting movement or or technique foundation with say something like a leg press or a belt squat or something like that but ultimately you've then got to be able to scale that up into what it looks like under relatively max loads because that's the task right if you're Mm -hmm. if you're trying to be better as a power lifter the task is strength expression at high intensities for low low reps or one rep you know Mm -hmm. Uh, and yeah that looks very different than punching out a bunch of mindless reps at 50 percent of your one rep max for a set of 10 yeah 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 it it, it is a it is a little bit of a tough thing because there's like two sides to this coin however like when you when you start to dissect it a, a bit further you can have the best of both worlds so what i mean by that is um is there an opportunity to improve technique with a low percentage let's say 50 percent? i would say absolutely yes there is and i would look at it like this let's say um we'll use 100 kilos for a round number you've got a lifter that deadlifts 100 kilos and at 75 kilos their upper back completely falls to shit so the you know the weakness that they present within that lift presents as a technical max at 75 percent of their total strength capacity so when you're doing 50 percent uh, you know, really the relative percentage of that particular weakness is now being taxed. It's, it's you know, a relatively higher percent that may be usable and trainable. Um, the problem with that idea is that if you, you approach it like that, forever you're working in percentage zones or intensities that don't actually contribute to making you any bigger or stronger. So you've got yes. the problem of like, how, how far do you hold someone back for the sake of, uh, you know, targeting this demand when there are ways to do that without having to hold someone back and making progress. Um, the other thing is, is that you've got the opportunity to work with lighter percentages every time you train because you warm up. And like, this is where the, the logic or the, the philosophy around what I say to people, you know, every single rep you do is an opportunity to practice to improve, to get better. When you're warming up, you're not just, you're not just, you know, getting blood flowing, you're practicing, you're practicing the movement. And if there are technical flaws within it, this is a great opportunity to tax those things and to get better at controlling those positions. Yeah. And, and on that note, that's, I think, exactly why you need a reasonably high percentage for your and a relatively low reps per set uh, for actual technical skill to carry over because and as I mentioned in the in my post like even the most mediocre of lifters with enough cognitive effort can make a 50% squat look really really good the issue comes when you get to 95% to 100% when you don't have the ability to be cognitively engaged in it anymore and you just have to do the having the ability to have a system that's so well refined that it just happens in the right way is the skill that you're trying to practice you're right mm-hmm. you're trying to practice autonomously performing a movement by repetitively practicing it in the same way and you can do that to a certain point and at a certain point you will actually just drop off and not be able to maintain it anymore and being able to flirt with that window like but like you said avoiding just like consciously holding people back for the sake of perfect technique the idea mm-hmm. that you're letting like you're letting good enough get in the way of per- uh, perfect sorry get in the way of good enough mm-hmm. uh and 
there's yeah it's it's a balancing act across the board i think it's but ultimately like you said at the start it's about understanding what the actual goal of a particular movement or a particular exercise is and more importantly how it fits into the overarching scheme right Mm -hmm. because like we might have in the way uh, i do a lot of programming at the moment we might have a secondary squatting movement that is done at a slightly lower percentage uh, and done more as a practice session where it's like, say it is 75%, it's maybe it's triples. The goal there is perfect execution, not how hard can I push these triples at 75% or, or those sort of things. Instead, it's about providing you a very distinct opportunity to practice the exact movement, right? It's mm-hmm. not go in and do some squat variation and just focus on heaps of weight, but instead this is, and I always outline it in like a program description, say like, hey, this squatting slot is about pure perfect execution and practice mm-hmm. and differentiating between opportunities to practice a skill and train a movement I think is important. The two often go really hand in hand, but having a very distinct this is practice, but it's not training as opposed to this is training and practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I, it's it's important to note here as well, like the notion of using a relatively higher percentage uh, as a more realistic way to transfer a skill into what we're trying to achieve in something like powerlifting or one rep max sort of situations um, is that there's variables that we can play around with that uh, modulate the intensity um, without actually increasing the weight on the bar. As in like, if you're doing high volume, let's say I give you six by six at 75%, your 36th rep is gonna be far closer to your uh, true one rep max at that given time, just based on the fatigue that you build up over doing that volume. And so like that's mirroring working at a higher percentage or adding a tempo at a lighter percentage is going to mirror you know, a relatively higher intensity. So there are opportunities to practice within this framework um, i think where people get a little bit lost is that they think that if you can do the movement well with a really light weight that automatically you're going to be able to do it well with a heavy weight and if that was the case no one would lift like shit because we'd all just yeah. fix our lifts with 30 percent and then be perfect and be fine 100 yeah, percent, yeah, exactly. exactly i am um have been attempting to formalize my programming process into a slightly more systematic approach uh, recently. And and in doing so, one of the things I've been thinking on regularly is how I classify the intent of different movement slots within a program. Uh, And some of this uh, as an idea I was sort of first exposed to from the compound performance guys, Kyle Dobbs and Matt Domney. But the way I'm using the vernacular at the moment is is to categorize exercises either an output exercise where i would consider you to be relatively sound in terms of your technical skill and therefore the focus is like secondarily is always on improving that skill and being consistent but first and foremost the priority is performance so you're pushing weight you're aiming to do them as well as you can but to work hard So for the most part, that's going to be where your main lifts and very close variations will fall into. There'll be output exercises. Uh, Then within that framework, I also talk about the idea of a developmental exercise, which is something where the constraint of the environment, be it tempo, be it uh, like, you know, a pause or a a different bar or, or some constraint like that forces a low, the load to be significantly reduced compared to an equivalent in the output slot and therefore the driver or 
the the skill or particular uh, physiological characteristic that we're looking for is the the rate limiter as opposed to just pure force output. And so that's where I put things like you know tempo squats where the goal is yeah do them really well work hard doing them but i don't actually care that much about exactly what the load is as long as you're working within the parameters of say the rpe and set and rep range and, mm-hmm. and tempos and, and those sort of things so being able to at least in my head differentiate between those two exercises just help or those two categories of exercise helps me then explain the intent behind each thing because i think for a lot of powerlifters especially this meathead mentality of you just got to fucking go balls to the wall all the time push heavy loads always work to the top end of your range always work to the top end of your rpe range or whatever the case may be mm-hmm. getting away from that mindset and understanding the differing intents behind each exercise within an overarching scheme as opposed to just within an individual session or training week or whatever uh can yeah then help just get the message across to the performance aspect of it and like what we're actually looking for mm-hmm. uh and that's just helped helped a clarify my th- my thoughts but then b helped me explain the intent to people better and therefore at least i think get better outcomes from it yeah 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 100 percent. as a lifter as well you, you you have to recognize that there needs to be a mindset shift you know like the um one of the most common approaches in something like powerlifting is to try and make everything feel easy, to try and yep. make everything look fast, to look easy, to move quickly, to be explosive. Um, if you're focusing on improving or changing your technique, the the notion should be that like these changes that you need to make, these positions you need to work on, because they are not currently your strongest position, otherwise you'd be in them automatically when you try and move fast or move more weight, when you work on them, they're going to feel harder. Yeah. And so like um, there needs to be a mindset shift around, okay, well, well, I'm doing my five sets of five. I'm going to do them as as good as I can from a speed and a power perspective to if I'm actively working on changing the way that I move and the way that I move is significantly different uh, to how I want to move, it's going to be fucking hard. Yeah. It's going to be really fucking yeah. hard. Um, and, you know, embracing that level of suck and um, carrying an objective third party like a coach or a uh, phone with a video recorder on it is going to be an extremely powerful tool. Um, Recognize that if you're trying to make changes to movement, uh, the weights that you're working with are going to be, it's up to you to make them feel hard by doing it with a higher quality. That's a hard thing to wrap your head around, especially like if you're in just the, um, in the trenches of training where it's already hard because you're just doing work now you're working on top of work it's it's not easy yeah and that's where i think for me the separating out the categorization of those exercises has helped explain that to people and Mm. the idea that understanding in the output category when we're talking about reps to failure we're for the most part talking about pretty close to pure failure right like we're Mm -hmm. never really going to get to true mechanical failure in a back squat because of the nature of the movement something will break down but the assumption is by putting an exercise in that slot i'm assuming that you are relatively consistent and competent at that movement and so when you push hard to failure it'll be close to like a, a legitimate failure point 
in a developmental exercise in the way I program what I'm looking at from a failure perspective is not that true failure, but is instead like positional or technical failure where say like the, the high bar, or sorry, like a safety bar heels elevated squats a really easy uh, way to understand this because it's one of those movements where if you execute it in the way that I normally use it, which is emphasizing like a pure knee flexion squat where it's as much of a vertical uh, pelvis movement as possible, it's really easy for most people to like get to a failure point that is them just shooting their hips back, folding in half and standing up with the squat and get four or five more reps out pretty comfortably. Mm-hmm. But that, then that has compromised the intent of the movement as it stands, which was in that developmental category where we were emphasizing that particular position. So instead of specifying that that failure is like, yeah, fucking just push until you can't, Instead, it's about, okay, well, at what point does that start to break down? And then how do you assess that proximity of failure from that framework? Mm-hmm. So being able to, I, I like giving people like a warning rep, essentially. So I describe it as like, if you do one and you're like, oh, that was pretty shit. And it wasn't quite what I was looking for. And then you do another one and it's still the same. That's your failure point. Like that's the end of the set. Because at that point, pushing any further forward is actually counterintuitive to what we're trying to get out of it. Because the goal in that category is a, is a really pure positional or very specific positional uh, approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like it. I, yeah, I um, in in the stuff that I'm doing with people, uh, you know, my, my you've all heard me say that the only way you're going to fix a squat is with a squat. You know, yeah. so like. Um, uh i don't i don't vary too far away from the movements themselves i try and get most of the groundwork done within within the actual movement but exactly as you were saying like the, there comes a time uh where um fuck what was the exact wording you used before uh i can't remember but al- along the lines of you know th- there's <laughs> there's kind of a time and a place for this stuff and um like the last thing i want to do with a lifter is is actively hold them back balance balance is the word you use we're always finding this balance between like how perfect do i want you to endeavor to make these uh these sets and these reps at this percentage uh versus like if you work so hard on making it perfect are you going to fall short of the work that i want you to do and for me regardless of technique um the work kind of trumps it at at that stage when when we've got a defined goal at the end of this which might be a competition coming up or something like that it's really hard as a coach and as a lifter uh to um really know which side of that balance to fall on at any given time uh because like if, if you play too hard into one of the extremes the other extreme suffers because of it and ultimately holds back the whole system if you go too hard on like technical perfection all the time you're going to have to work with an intensity frameworks that just don't break adaptations and don't drive strength forward if you go super hard balls to the wall you know more more brawn than brains kind of training you're going to get strong but like at some point something's got to give if your technique is not uh you know uh, not facilitating that strength to continue to develop you're either going to break or you're just going to stop you're going to hit a wall and not be able to express further strength because your movement's holding you back and so that that balancing act i mean like that is my job (laughs) that is my job as a coach is to like work with lifters who have specific goals specific competitions uh where i can't just say let's go back to you know step one and build you back up from the ground up you want to get stronger we have to start you somewhere in the in the realms of strength and try and do things simultaneously which means constantly playing with this balancing act 
Yeah, so I, I have two points around that. First and foremost, exactly what you're saying is one of the reasons why signing up for coaching of any variety when you're exactly 12 weeks out from your next meet and yeah. expecting your new coach to put you in some position to hit a world-changing PR 12 weeks from the beginning of your coaching experience is a terrible fucking idea <laughs> um, because at that point, you're really just making that coach's job of finding that balance point much harder. And most coaches are going to default to like, hey, it's good enough. Just keep fucking working hard and we'll try and get you through this comp and hit some PBs. Whereas, mm. yeah, realistically, a, a good coach is looking, okay, well, this is what's happening in the next 12 weeks. It, are we having a discussion about this being a prep for a nationals or a, or a big invitational meet? Or is this just like the next meet that you happen to have signed up for? And that what we can do is use it as a like, okay, we're going to use this training block to develop some skill mm. and then see how it works on competition day and then use that as a foundation to push forward from. That's often the discussion I'm trying to have in that scenario is like, this is the expectation that we have around how this works because of the timeframes involved and the nature of high intensity, high volume, high fatigue inducing training in the lead up to a powerlifting meet not being particularly conducive to like significant technical change. 100%. Sure, you could you can make little changes, you can tweak processes and get a better outcome in that time, but you're not going to be in a position to completely rebuild something from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like you you say, have said plenty of times before, that off-season, whatever you want to refer to, that period post-comp is actually when the real fucking work happens. That's when you're laying that foundation because 12 weeks out, you're, like, you're not going to change that much. We're going to work hard. We're going to be able mm-hmm. to put you in a position where we can hopefully have the best performance possible on the day, but wholesale changes in that time period is just not a feasible option. Mm. Uh, like That is the... If you're a coach listening to this, that is probably one of the biggest pieces of advice that can be extrapolated to so many scenarios, which is if you get a lifter approach you um, with a time frame that's not actually really workable and 12 weeks out of a comp is not that workable for a lot of things. Like it's not that workable to make strength adaptations. It's not that workable to change technique. Having that conversation on day one and setting up the expectations of what could potentially happen uh, in the most realistic fashion is going to save you so much hurt. If you're like, fuck yeah, yeah. come on board, we're going to get you strong as fuck, oh, you can shoot yourself in the foot so badly with that. And then all the onus falls back on you when you really had no control to begin with. Yeah, exactly. And it, and it's like it's easy in a coaching scenario where we've had enough experiences here to say that sort of thing, to be like, hey, like as an athlete, you should definitely help think about this sort of thing as well it's far less likely to get through to people who are actually athletes employing coaches. They're still going to end up approaching people. Oh yeah, I'm fucking 12 weeks out from my next meet. Better hire a coach. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, like, did you just fucking do nothing for the last 12 weeks? Cause like maybe you could have actually made some gains there. But yeah. like you said, I think from a coaching standpoint, it is a hundred percent your responsibility to establish uh, reasonable expectations of what can be achieved based on the timeframes that you're presented with. hundred percent. I had a second point about uh, changing things in technique-wise, and I got too rambly on the first point, and I've basically forgotten. That's okay. I don't have really anything to add, to be honest. (sighs) What was I going to say? No, it's gone. I'll probably think of it three minutes after we finish recording. All good. 
All right. Yeah. Well, that's about it. That's about it. See ya. Bye.